0: welcome to the lions of liberty podcast here is your host your guide your shining beacon of liberty mark claire welcome
1: once again my little liberty lemmings to another Episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast, the good old LOLP, where it's just you and me, well, you and me, whoever else might be listening, and a host of great guests. Now, guys, I'm not gonna lie, I am terrible with dates, anniversaries, birthdays, any of that stuff. If you're a friend or family member or loved one of mine, and you value these things. There's a decent chance that I've missed one of those uh, in your time knowing me. Uh, You know, I've never been big on remembering dates, remembering anniversaries, and and all that stuff. But, you know, I want to publicly apologize. I want to take this moment right now on this episode, episode 55 of the Lions of Liberty podcast. I want to take a moment to apologize to everyone out there who I've missed. Uh, You know, if I've let something slip by birthday, anniversary, anything like that, I greatly apologize. You know, it's just not my thing. And, you know, you don't feel bad because I even let our own anniversary slip by. We're sitting here on episode 55. It's been a little over a year since I started doing this podcast. And, you know, it's been an amazing experience doing this show. It's not only given me an outlet for advancing our brand of liberty, for extending our site, lionsofliberty.com, even further... Doing the show has also given me the opportunity to speak with some great minds, some absolutely brilliant and engaging people, many of which I might not otherwise have had the chance to speak with. So I thought that here, after the first year or so of this show, I'd take a look back at some of my personal favorite moments from the first year. Now I know what you're thinking. Uh oh, a clip show, the Lions of Liberty podcast must be jumping the shark. But I assure you, there will be no shark jumping. There will be no motorcycles, no pools of sharks, no Arthur Fonzarelli.
2: Or Henry Winkler, as I was scolded at at the Spectrum in 1975. This show will continue
1: and thrive here each and every week. And of course, you can find the show each and every week over at linesofliberty.com where it is posted every single Thursday. You can also find us on iTunes. You can go ahead and subscribe there. You can find us on the Stitcher radio app. If you just like to kick back and listen to some streaming radio and hear us whenever we come on, Well, you can find us over at Daily Paul Radio, at Grassroots Revolution Radio, and over at LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. So there are plenty of methods by which you can hear this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast, and I encourage you to keep doing so. Now, what I've got for you here today, it's not really a best of show. It's not a year in review or anything like that. Really, my intention here is just to point out a few moments that really stood out to me on a personal level. You know, I've loved every single guest I've had on the show. I pretty much thoroughly vet my guests. I know who I'm getting on before I speak with them. So, you know, everybody I've had on is someone I think is fantastic or else they wouldn't be on here. I've got a high bar at the LOLP. But, you know, there are a few moments that just kind of have stood out to me over the course of the past year or so of doing the show that for various reasons... I wanted to point out to you guys, give you guys a little sampler platter. You know, I know there's a lot of new listeners that have jumped aboard since, you know, since that first fateful episode where I interviewed Stefan Kinsella about intellectual property. And again, if you want to go back and check out any of these past episodes on your own, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast is the place for you, because that's where we have the archive of all our past shows. Now, when I first started this show... One of the very first guys I envisioned interviewing was G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, perhaps the most comprehensive and engaging book ever written on the Federal Reserve System. And as soon as I envisioned having a podcast, his face, his name just popped right out there. as a guy I had to find a way to get on and talk to. He's written on a plethora of subjects, but, you know, Creature from Jekyll Island is the first, you know, after hearing about it from Ron Paul, after hearing about the Federal Reserve, it's the first book I really, you know, grabbed on these kind of liberty topics and just dove into and it's just such an engaging work it reads like a mystery novel you learn so much it's the size of a textbook but i mean it doesn't feel like a textbook when you're reading it it really is if you you know have any interest in the history of the federal reserve i do recommend going back and not only listening to the full interview with g edward griffin and we'll post the links to all of these in our show notes But I encourage you to dive into that book as well, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And, you know, it's truly an engaging and informative read on the Federal Reserve. Now, when I had Mr. Griffin on the show, I had the opportunity to ask him just why he believed that his book, of all the books out there written on the Federal Reserve, was so successful, how he sees this political issue of the Federal Reserve playing out. And before that, I was able to learn a little bit more about just how and why G. Edward Griffin decided to dedicate his career to the pursuit
2: of truth and knowledge.
1: Why did you decide to dedicate your life and career
2: to the pursuit of truth and knowledge? Well, Mark, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it, it didn't all happen at once. Like so many things in our lives, uh, things sort of creep along, and uh, you wind up in a, a destination where you never anticipated going in the first place. I started out a long, long time ago uh, wanting to become active in Hollywood productions. Can you believe that? I was trained as a young man in uh, television production and stage productions, communications, and all that kind of stuff. So I I came out to the West Coast anticipating that that would be my career. Well, through a lot of bustles with reality, I found out that uh, there were people out (laughs) in Hollywood with much greater talent than mine who were uh, washing cars and waiting table and so forth. (laughs) So I, by this time, I had a little family to support, so I got serious and went to work in a real job and worked as an insurance underwriter and promotional expert and so forth. And then I, I began to read some books and attend public lectures on things relating to what was really going on in the world and became very, very concerned. And so uh, I did the thing that my wife almost uh, died of a heart attack for. I I quit my job, you know, and I decided I wanted to to set the world straight. And she looked at me like I'd lost my mind. My (laughs) gosh, how could you do that? We had no idea where the next money was going to come from. But anyway, so I started to give public presentations and I started the little one tank operation producing uh, films and documentary film strips in those days we produced. And then I started to write a couple of books. And the first thing you know, as the years drifted by, I had created a little company called American Media. We still have it. That's what we hang our hat on in the morning when we come in. It's American Media. And so our little company publishes books and produces uh, documentary films. And we produce audio recordings as well, relating to primarily to uh, important issues that have to do with geopolitics and health. So, and that's what I do. I've written a couple of books along the way. One on the United Nations, one on the Supreme Court. I never will forget that one. It was called um, The Great Prison Break. The Supreme Court Leads the Way. And it was all about the Warren Court and the way they made it almost impossible out of the judicial system that they had been revamping to prosecute obvious criminals because, of, you know, the rules had been broken in some way or another. And so I called it The, the Great Prison Break. And, uh, boy, I spent a lot of time on that one, and and it was supposed to be the engine that, that gets Earl Warren removed from the Supreme Court. So about a week a week after the book was published, Earl Warren resigned. <laughs> it had nothing to do with my book, of course. Pure
1: coincidence, of course.
2: <laughs> Pure coincidence. But anyway, there there went the market for my book. So I, I don't. I just had to throw that in because it was kind of funny. But then I wrote a book on cancer, a natural approach to the treatment of cancer, and probably my most well known book was the uh, Creature from Jekyll Island which is a critical look at the Federal Reserve. So that's my career in a nutshell, and uh, it's kept me busy.
1: Why do you think that your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, why do you think this book was able to receive so much mainstream attention where many other books had been written on the Federal Reserve and largely ignored? How were you able to break through?
2: Well, that's a good question. It's, It's kind of a mystery to me. There have been a lot of very good books written on the topic. I've hope I've read them all, and I've enjoyed them all. I learned a lot from them. They were a, a, sort of a springing pad for me to jump from uh, in my own research. Uh, but you're quite right. Most of them remain relatively unread. Uh, they sit uh, gathering dust in the library. Uh, I don't know why mine was uh, able to break through, and it's been an amazing story. I'm amazed every time we have another printing I was just told today by my warehouse manager that we need another printing, which will put it at about number thirty-seven. I think we're in the fifth edition and soon to hit a sixth edition. So how do you explain that? I don't know. Perhaps it's because I decided from the beginning that the the real story here was not in the technicalities of what are the you know the discount ratios. What is the ratio between a deposit and a credit? How did they work this? How does the discount window work? How many members are on the Federal Reserve Board? How are they appointed? All of these technical questions I decided are perhaps important, but not very interesting. Mm. I thought the real story was in the human drama that was being played out because of it. I looked at this as a who done it. To me, this is a crime. This is perhaps one of the greatest crimes of all history, of how a partnership of Political scientists and monetary scientists can join together and use banking and government to legally plunder the population without the population even knowing it. And therefore, if they don't know about it, they can't complain about it. And I thought that, to me, was a great crime. And so I saw it as a crime, and I decided to write it as a who done it? How did they do it? Where did they bury the body? How did they disguise their actions? So that was kind of my approach. That's how I saw the story, and I wrote it that way, and perhaps that's the reason it was able to break through when others had not.
1: It's probably one of the reasons I was able to read this whole book that looks so intimidating when I first got it, but it really does read, like you said, like a whodunit, a mystery novel. It really does suck you in. And then when you realize it's not a novel, this is really what happened. It really does (laughs) blow your mind. One last question, Mr. Griffin. I'm just curious, how do you see... The central bank, the Federal Reserve System, how do you see this all playing out? Do you think the system is just eventually going to collapse on itself, or do you think maybe enough people can become aware, thanks to people like you, people like Ron Paul that have been talking about it so much in the public eye? Will there be maybe a political solution to ending it? What do you think?
2: Well, I don't think that any power structure like this ever just quits. It has to be pushed. They never give up. Uh, it, it's too uh, too powerful, it's too profitable, the wine is too heady for the partygoers just to voluntarily give it up. The Federal Reserve will have to be abolished. Well, what's it going to take before that happens? First of all, is it possible? Of course it's possible. The Federal Reserve was created by Congress, it can be abolished by Congress. But that means simply that uh, well, the congressmen, or a couple hundred of them, a couple hundred men and women have to decide they don't want the Federal Reserve anymore. Is that impossible? No, it's not. But it surely is difficult because just like in the days of the creation of the Federal Reserve back in 1910, congressmen and senators know that for them, the cross swords with this institution is likely to be political suicide for them. And uh, you can see that in the current movements uh, led so ably by Congressman Ron Paul, to try and, first of all, abolish the Fed. Well, nobody wanted to go that far. They kind of ignored him. And so then he suggested, well, how about just an audit of the Fed? Oh, well, that's good. An audit of the Fed, that sounds like we're not going to go anywhere. We just get some committee that will be beholden to the banks that will do an investigation of this thing, take a couple of years, and then they'll come up with a big fat report and then it'll be a whitewash. You know, they say, well, nothing wrong there. Well maybe this shouldn't have happened. And maybe there was a little a little deceit there. But basically it's a good institution and now we've strengthened it. You know, that's what it that's what these investigations usually wind up and if you doubt that just take a look at the Warren Commission report on the JFK assassination or the 9-11 Commission report on 9-11. And you, you can pretty much see how these investigative committees work out. They're highly, highly political, and they're designed from the very beginning to protect those in power from any exposure of wrongdoing rather than to expose them. So anyway, that was my feeling, and my view still is, on an audit of the Fed. But nevertheless, even though Ron Paul got a lot of support in the initial stages of an audit of the Fed, which sounded pretty harmless, when push came to shove, when it was time to actually pass the legislation, about half of those people who came on board originally said they would support the bill, in fact more than half, They backed off at the last minute and changed their minds. They don't want to touch this hot wire because they know that there's high voltage there. So the reason I'm saying that is that it's clear to me the present group that's in Washington, that group is not going to abolish the Federal Reserve. We have to replace those people with new individuals who come on board precisely because they want to abolish the Federal Reserve. They are coming on board not because they want the financial support of the banking institutions or the large corporations, which are really beholden to the banking institutions. They're coming on board because they're produced by the grassroots. They're produced by the people back home who are fed up with this stuff. And they're not going there to feather their nests, but to restore the republic. When that happens, then it'll be an easy matter to abolish the Fed. But now the next step is what happens when the legislation is proposed to abolish the Fed. What happens when it actually passes through Congress? Well, now the fun just begins because we know that the banks are not going to let go easily. They'll do everything possible to ruin the economy and then blame it on those who wanted to abolish the Fed. That actually happened in Jackson's time. It was a guy by the name of Biddle. The president of the central bank at that time was uh, Nicholas Biddle. And when Jackson threatened to abolish the central bank, he deliberately began to contract the credit in the nation, which caused unemployment, it caused business failure. It started to destroy the economy, and he did that deliberately so that he could say, you see, you see, you tamper with the central bank, look what it's doing to the economy. And he almost got away with it, except it was almost a fluke that one of the major newspapers picked up the truth and published it in an editorial page. It was then republished in other major newspapers, and unexpectedly, in those days we had a fairly honest and open press, unexpectedly the truth got out, and the people were angry that Nicholas Biddle was actually causing the economic crisis, and it wasn't Jackson at all. And it was that critical and almost accidental discovery of the truth that prevented this nefarious scheme from working. Well, today, you can be sure the same type of thing would happen, and I'm not so sure that the media, as as beholden as it is today to the financial interests, I'm not so sure that we could rely on the media to tell the truth. And so we could look for one heck of a battle, all kinds of stresses and strains on the economy, and on public confidence of the banking system, public confidence of the of the political system, it could be almost revolutionary. In other words, rough water ahead. Out of all of that, we have to know that it can be done, and in my view, it must be done. Because in my view, if we do not abolish the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will abolish America. All
1: right, guys. And again, I really enjoyed speaking with G. Edward Griffin on the Federal Reserve. Now, another guy out there whose work I've really enjoyed in the past in a completely different manner is a guy named Adam Kokesh. Now... I don't always agree with his tactics. I don't necessarily agree with every sort of fine detail of his philosophy, but I do think that Adam is generally very principled, and I really find his man on the street libertarian interviews to be particularly good in, uh, you know, engaging people about different subjects, different ideas, pointing out contradictions in their line of thought, much like another past guest of mine, Jan Helfeld, does as well. But when I had Adam on the show, I wanted to make sure I didn't just discuss everything we agreed upon in the world, which is a lot. But, you know, I wanted to point out what I see as a flaw in the way many libertarians express their views when engaging with others. So let's take a listen to that. You know, Adam, something I'm not shy about at all on the show, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. So I stumbled upon your interview <laughs> uh, a month or two ago, I think, with Roddy Piper. And um, yeah, yeah, that was a blast. That was a blast. It was a blast to listen to. And, you know, but something I noticed in that interview, and this is just kind of some ideas I'm having. So you seem to hit a wall. And I think we've all hit this wall when trying to sort of explain libertarianism or what have you with people when it comes to the point where, you know, he's agreeing with you on everything. He's he's with you on individual rights. He's with you on how the government's doing this, how the drug war's bad, you know, every step of the mm-hmm, way mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, where you hit the mm-hmm. wall is when you, you go from that to advocating no government at all. You know, and that's when the kind of brain explosion occurs and, and when people really start to freak out, you know, and that's, that's the same kind of methods I've taken many times over the years with people is going to that no government thing. And I, I think you're right when you're talking about principles where you need to be principled and, and the, the minarchist argument is absolutely wrong because they're just arbitrarily saying, you know, we can exert violence over a certain area as long as we only keep it to these, like you said, these two or three things to organize it with.
3: It's intellectually pathetic and weak is what it is to say, well, nonviolence, freedom, non-aggression principles, great, uh, except for this stuff. I don't know why, just because we haven't figured it out yet. It sounds so lazy.
1: But let me run this by you for a second, though. Let's just envision kind of a truly free society for a moment here where people, you know, have largely accepted... Individual rights, non-aggression principle, people are not trying to form these states that violate people's rights and that kind of thing. Even in that Mm -hmm. society, I mean, the way I'm seeing it, people are still going to sort of congregate. You know, cities will still exist. People will still come together and form organizations possibly to do things like police Like uh courts and that sort of thing. And I know you wouldn't have a problem with that because what you're emphasizing all throughout your book and throughout everything you talk about is, you know, voluntary associations and that sort of thing. But I
3: think where we get I mean, you can have all that. It's just that the shift in the foundation is gonna be the arbitrary authority of government to the specific legitimate property rights authority of individuals.
1: But my point is when you know if like say picture that organization that still is government. It's not what government is today.
3: You know, it's not no, the, the no, tyrannical no, see, government. Now, see, now now see, now you're playing the word game. No, government is you got like you, you could have something else and then call it government, but it, it's like if if you had like like say say we invented the car, right? And so everybody's like, hey, that's a car. Okay, cool. And then someone invents the bus, and you say, hey, check it out, this is a bus. And then you get rid of all of the cars, and you start calling the bus a car. You know, okay, fine. You want to call that government? That's cool. But that's not what we're talking about in today's world, where this is what government is, and this is what government refers to. And I, I think it's better to make it clear than trying to play this game because you're 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 going into like a, you're trying to twist logic and play a, a semantic game you know, in order to appease people and say, well, we'll have government, but it'll be voluntary. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, you can call it that if you want, but you have to really delineate that. And I'd rather say, no, this is a stateless society. These organizations happen in lots of fluid ways rather than saying it's going to look like government. Although I do say in the book, and this is a very, very important point for people to understand when they're, you know, experiencing trepidation about the transition period. You know, we can't just... Uh, you know, get rid of government. And I agree, this is why I advocate for localization. This is laid out in the book. But that when you start, when you, you get rid of, uh, national governments, then down to state governments, you know, then county, whatever, until you get to a local enough point that you can, uh, actually dissolve it and, you know, go into a, a private property based system. And when you do that, like at the county level, like let's say in the United States we could go through this, and then at the county level we say, okay, well, we're now going to transition all law enforcement to private organizations. So, First of all, what we're going to do is we're going to take the county police and they're going to have their business model and the city police are going to be there and they're going to have their business model. They are now private companies and they are going to be funded by subscription for people in the area or they're going to be funded by donation or what have you, but immediately you allow them to compete and adapt but at the beginning i think a lot of people out of fear or out of you know you know, just out of going well let's be safe let's be sure a lot of people are going to step up and donate and say you know what this might not be the most efficient thing but let's keep going with with this system that is only sort of working and and slowly work to make it better but the thing is right now when we're locked into the status model it doesn't get better it gets worse you can start with the same mechanisms. You can start with the same organizations and structures and even courts if you if it's necessary in some places. But the thing is, once you get rid of the government part, it is immediately uh, uh, accountable to the consumer, to the market, to peaceful people and can immediately start adapting to meet people's needs. And the most important thing we can say as libertarians about that scenario and people ask, well, who's going to do this? What's going to happen in this situation? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a central planner. You know, you want, me to, you want me to predict, you know, how many widgets are going to be made in 2050 in a free society? I can't tell you. I just know that nonviolence is superior to violence, and here's why.
1: Well, sure. It's it's the who will pick the cotton thing. You know, it's like, well, I don't really care. I want to abolish slavery because it's wrong to put someone in chains. That's just wrong. However everything else works out, I don't know. But we can do it, so it will happen. But, you know, I I think it's kind of the flip way. I don't think it's if you remove government, things will change. I think it's the other way around. I think it's if you change the way people think about their interactions with each other, if you kind of imbue a sort of vision of individual rights, that which people don't have right now, then that's when the organizations are all going to change, and maybe it what do we call it—government yes. or not? You know, that's when people are going to start to form voluntary well, associations and not try to force everybody into their particular system. So I think that it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. But I think the chicken or the egg, mm-hmm. whichever your view, is the philosophy kind of has to come first. You know what I'm saying?
3: Yes. And, yes. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really need to respond to that because yeah. that's that, a lot of people uh, as libertarians. I, you know, I, I hate to say that that's lazy. Again, it sounds kind of like that to me. Because I agree with you on your premise. Don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you on your premise. The paradigm has to change first. And actually, I talk about this in the book. You know, this is why I wrote the book. You have to change the paradigm. You have to give people, you know, you have to get people thinking differently. But a lot of people, people are creatures of pragmatism. Most libertarians today are self-selected based on their intellectual curiosity and based on their desire to have those underlying rules and to think philosophically. Most human beings are creatures of pragmatism. And they need that. And it's, a lot of libertarians say, well, we're just going to you know, advocate for issues or for the philosophy. You know, we're not going to talk about transition. And a lot of people go, well, then how do we get from here to there? Oh, you don't have a plan? Well, screw you. Then I'm going to stay right here. And I'm not, I'm not willing to accept that as an advocate for freedom. And that's why I took the time for myself to figure out how do we get from A to B and made sure that it was part of this book. And it's going to be actually, there's going to be a whole series of books in this format that come out of it, you know, 100 pages, unobjectionable, very easy to read, free audio books, free everything online. And one of them is, is going to get into this, uh, you know, a lot more. One of them is going to be my presidential campaign platform for 2020 called American Freedom on how we dissolve the United States federal government in four years. If you don't give people that, uh you, you know, they're, they're not going to latch on to this. We, we're, ne- we're never going to be able to expand into the next demographic circles as a movement if we don't give people a tangible action plan. And I think I've come up with one that is going to have that appeal. And I would go a step further and say that the progress to a voluntary society is inevitable as a force of nature. It's just a matter of how. And if you believe that, then the process of localization is pretty much inevitable too as you see central governments become unsustainable. So it's just a matter of how we do localization. Let's do it deliberately. Let's do it in a peaceful, orderly manner, as opposed to hoping that government spares us in its violent death throes as it desperately clings to power, as it collapses and fails. Because as you point out, you're right. Localism, building voluntary associations, is so important. That's another chapter or another topic in the book. Is you know how you render the state obsolete and less relevant. But at some point, you know you got to have people come together and say let's get rid of the momentum of the bureaucracy you know let's let's turn the ship around let's uh, you know instead of concentrating power up let's push it down and i think actually the democratic process as corrupt and disgusting as it may be is going to be the mechanism by which this consensus is established we see all over the world there's a global secessionist movement happening it's in the united states it's in europe it's in africa it's in china i mean it's, it's everywhere there are people going Gee, why do we have to be in this big country? Why do we have to be in this big collective? We want to be autonomous and they're able to do that through the electoral system. Similarly, I think after the paradigm shift, I think there is going to be, uh, an easy way of doing this peacefully and I, I have yet to hear a better strategy.
1: All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my little snippet there with Adam Kokesh. Again, I highly encourage you going back and listening to the full interview at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. Now, while I've always wanted to have certain guests on this show from the beginning, such as G. Edward Griffin such as Adam Koch, well-known names amongst libertarians. There are others which I may never have even come across if it wasn't for my work with lionsofliberty.com, my producing of this podcast. And one of those guests is a guy named Shane Whistler, who's been on the show twice. He's actually on our second episode, way back in episode two, and then recently back in episode 43. And he's written several books, including Reason and Liberty, and for individual rights, both of which I highly recommend. He really takes a philosophical look at the ideas of liberty and I think is, you know, probably one of the most rigorously principled folks I've encountered here in my little pursuit of the ideas of liberty myself. Now, Shane expresses many views which, on the surface, many hardcore libertarians, especially many who label themselves as anarchists, may disagree with views on intervention, on the formation of governments, etc. But you know, when we really break it down, I think many of those dissenting voices will find they actually agree with Shane once they take the time to listen to exactly where he's coming from. And you know, it's more than we can get through in a single podcast or even a snippet of a podcast, so I do highly encourage you once again to check out his works as well. But you know, in our latest podcast, we discussed Shane's essay Against Anarchism. And I asked him to describe a little bit about how some of his views go against the typical libertarian lines on things. So let's take a listen to Shane Whistler. You kind of got into some stuff there that I know is going to get some more libertarian panties in a bunch. Uh, talking about non-intervention and you know how you're not necessarily opposed to that concept. So, and I think this is kind of the the national sovereignty thing or the states' rights thing, will, where people will say you can't go and invade states just because they want to keep slavery, or you can't go and invade another country just because there are human rights violations there. So it's one of the objections I know you hear a lot is that it's illegitimate to just enforce natural law everywhere because people aren't necessarily consenting to the jurisdiction in that situation. So you can you explain why that's a fallacy?
4: Yeah, this, this will cause a lot of heartburn, but I get confused as to why it's so problematic. So I don't know if I can explain it, you know, so, so people will agree, but I'll try to. To pick a small example, if there's a, a woman next door and somebody you see somebody break into her house and she's being raped, you know, can you break into her house and violate her property rights, so to speak, and go in there and save her even though she doesn't know you're entering you have to ask her permission to come save her in any case it's the fact that her rights are being violated is giving you a license to go protect her and you can form an institution that says hey if somebody's rights are being violated we will go punish the aggressors or the rights violators and um, protect them and to me that's kind of a it's elementary it's an elementary fact and i'm not i actually don't know what you, how you can argue against it although... i I don't retain the weird arguments. You'd probably have to give me an argument against it, so I, I really don't know how, what to say. It's kind of it's just bizarre that somebody would say, oh, these people are being burned, uh, stoned to death, and all these things, and you don't have a right to go protect them. Maybe what they'll say is that, well, I didn't want to fund that. That's not what my government, you know. The United States government is not their, it's not their prerogative because they're taxing me to go do this, and so I don't want to pay for this. Et Etc. Et well, in that case, the problem is that you're being taxed without your consent. And so uh, I would say fix that problem. I would focus on the problem, which is that you're being taxed without your consent. But there's no problem if, like, the majority of Americans wants to stop stoning in some foreign country. There's no problem in principle with them going and stopping it. There's a problem if they tax you to go do it and you don't want to participate. That's the problem. So focus on the real problem.
1: Right. It's it's really the difference between differentiating our current situation where, you know, a lot of the objections to intervention in other countries, it really ultimately does come down to the situation where they, you know, I think a lot of people will see that, yes, we have a a lot of evidence that the U.S. government is not very consistent in their support for individual rights. They certainly, you know, they launch a war on drugs at home. They spy on us here at home. So we have no real reason to believe their motivations overseas. And at the same time, there's plenty of evidence that they are, are often fabricating evidence to, you know, go overseas and that they're really there for other reasons, whether it's oil or other geopolitical reasons or what have you. But that doesn't really speak to the actual principle, despite the fact that we can say our our current government is clearly not genuine on this, you know, on the matter. It doesn't change the fact that people as a right would still have the absolute right to defend the individual rights of others, regardless of where those rights violations are occurring. So I think that's a very important distinction that you that you continue to make.
4: I think that this kind of highlights a problem that we have as being pro-liberty idealists and advocating a world where there's liberty. To be an idealist or to believe, you know, which means believe that there's such a thing as a right and a wrong. It's a kind of a creative leap. It's a change of perspective. And um, people have a hard time imagining, you know, outside of the context that they were, you know, raised and born in and, and all the media, you know. And it requires being kind of a visionary and, and thinking, well, how should it be? And imagining all the different ways it should be. And then you try to move it to where it should be. And I think a lot of people just lack the ability to see that. So, so they, they mix the two issues together. They mix the way things are you know, with the way it should be. And they, can't see, they don't see either one of them very clearly. And so when you raise an issue like, well, I can go you know, intervene if I'm protecting somebody's rights... They're only viewing it through the lens of the current context. But what we're trying to do is actually you know, shift you know, our you know, humanity to the better context. So we have to look, be able to imagine that better context and talk in terms of the principles that would govern in that general context, you know, that future context, and not be kind of just you know, stuck, you know, only seeing as far as our nose in, in the current situation. And that's a difficult issue.
1: Definitely. I mean, in a way, it's just as silly as as decrying the concept of delivering mail just because the government currently has a monopoly on delivering mail and because they tax us coercively to create this postal system. Well, we all agree with that the system that they're running might not be the proper way to deliver mail, but it doesn't mean that the concept of delivering mail is wrong or anything like that. You really have to separate you know, what the government is doing and how they're doing it. And there are many things the government does, including, you know, the justice system, including enforcing certain laws against theft, property, rape, and that kind of thing that are perfectly legitimate. We might think that the structure they've set up to do so is is wrong, that it's poorly funded, that it's inefficient. There are many, many valid criticisms on that end, but the actual tasks that they're being assigned are not necessarily tasks that people shouldn't be partaking in. And I think it's a very important distinction that you make. All right, and again, guys, like I said, Shane Whistler, I really have to point out, is one of the most thoroughly, you know, thoughtful and, you know, most engaging people out there. So if you have any criticisms of what you've heard him say on the show, criticisms of his work, which I highly recommend you checking out, his essay Against Anarchism, you know, he will engage you. You can send the questions to me, Mark, M-A-R-C, at com. You can also engage with him directly as well. So I highly encourage people to do that because I think, you know, advancing the conversation, challenging each other's ideas is the most essential thing we can be doing in the liberty movement. Because if we can't sort out our consistent philosophy amongst ourselves, what on earth are we going to be able to sell to other people out there that are are getting interested in this stuff? So again, I highly recommend checking out Shane's work. Now, you know, my last snippet I want to share with you here in my little favorite moment show is a guy that I have talked to long before I ever did This podcast, long before I had a website, lionsofliberty.com, long before I was even a libertarian or even had political views at all. And of course, I'm referring to my dad, Alan Clare, who I brought on the show in honor of Father's Day. Now, and of course, I asked my dad about, of all things, myself, (laughs) how my influence helped shape his views in recent years. And I got a little insight into how he saw perhaps an early podcaster developing in me even as a child. So let's take a listen. I know that there was some 20-something-year-old punk kid of yours that maybe started sending you a few clips maybe five or six years ago of this Ron Paul guy. You know, this guy that was a Republican, seemed right up your alley, spoke about small government, personal responsibility, all that great stuff. And I remember sending you some of these clips. Yes, yes, I'll I'll admit this punk 20-something-year-old kid is in fact me. You know, I remember sending you a couple Ron Paul clips, and uh, the first time I did so, I think it was a clip from a debate where he was comparing the situation in Iraq and getting bogged down there and just kind of being involved in an endless war, comparing that to Vietnam. And I remember at the time you emailed me back saying that it's a silly analogy. Hold on to your money. Don't bother donating to this guy. And I did not take your advice in this case. I often do. But in this case, I continued to support Ron Paul and continued to pester you with some clips of his from debates and that kind of thing. And I think it's safe to say that over time, you became quote unquote a Ron Paul guy. So maybe you can just describe a little bit how listening to Ron Paul or maybe listening to me started to change your views a little bit or at least maybe open your eyes up to a different way of looking at things outside of that traditional way that mainstream republicans had presented issues to you. What what are your memories of that?
0: Let's go back to the beginning on this. I think that like most parents when a child is born, you just hope and pray that you have a healthy child, which of course, of course we did three times. Then the next thing you wonder about is, how can I ever get the ideas, the thoughts, the beliefs that are in my mind into the mind of this child? And we did all the usual things during your childhood, for example, you know, the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, the athletics, uh, you wrestled, but one day parents wake up, such as ourselves... And realize that not only do our children know what's in our head and probably have beliefs very similar to ours, but at some point, they're way beyond. And I remember you saying to me, we had a discussion about politics, and you said, Dad, don't, don't you get it? <laughs> uh, these guys are really not different. Uh, they're the same. And that followed with a conversation where I said to you, well, gee, you you ought to vote for somebody that has the possibility of getting elected if you want to impact all these things. And you felt that if you didn't vote for someone who you really wanted and you got someone who you didn't want, then it was the same as voting for someone that you didn't want. So more and more I've come across and I've come over to that way of thinking Mark the disappointments to see the Republican Party for example go along with this stretching of the national debt limit I just don't get it I can't I can't run my house that way I can't run a business that way and I don't think we can run a country that way I think that the security of our country is at risk certainly when we can't pay our bills. When we can't pay our bills, we can't support a military and project either our defense or our national policy. Everything starts to go downhill. So I think we are we are at a very, very critical point. And I, uh, I don't think people realize how close to the edge we really are. So I know I've gotten just a, a little off down the road there, but
1: Oh, well that 's what this show's all about, you know we don 't stick to script here at the Lions of Liberty Podcast. We let it run and roll with our ideas wherever they may take us, so no apologies needed
0: <laughs> okay so anyway, I can aptly say that you have been a real key in my education, and uh, i've come over to <laughs> i 've come over to your way of thinking
1: let 's take it back just a little bit further because I'm kind of curious, because I don't really remember necessarily a lot of the conversations I used to have with you when I was younger, before I even got involved in this Ron Paul stuff, but I do vividly remember sort of, you know, you would always put on different news programs when we'd be in the car, um, Paul Harvey, that kind of stuff, so I was always aware of current events, aware of the news, but one thing I remember in our conversations, and maybe you remember this more than I do, but I remember always questioning things. I remember doing a lot of saying... Well, why should this things be this way or why should things be that way? So, do you have any recollections of any conversations we might have had 10, 15, 20 years ago that might have started you thinking, "Uh-oh, th- this kid might be trouble. He might start doing some doing some crazy thinking out there."
0: Well, you you've reminded me of that. So, let me let me come back right along that road. I think that we have been uh, really gifted or uh, privileged your mother and I to have some really talented children. Each of you has a unique skill, and from the time you were probably five years old, you had an interviewing and a questioning skill, which not only enabled you to ask intelligent questions and analyze the answers, but I've always thought that you had x-ray vision, in effect, (laughs) in that if if you felt someone was not telling you the truth, you would ask second and third level questions and you'd keep on going and you wouldn't stop till you were pretty sure that, that you had truthful answers honest answers so uh i've never seen anyone else or met anyone else who uh, who had that skill and i think uh, you know you've you've got uh, you got piles of that so i do remember that very well the questioning was I first became aware of the questioning thing, not with you, but certainly, uh, you know, in my military capacity, in that, you know, I mean, you can go all the way back to the Germans who said that we were just following orders. But when you have a college-educated officer corps, and indeed coming out of the, the service academies, they do, as a matter of course, question when there's time to question if they don't feel they have the right answer, they'll keep on asking questions. So we have a population, you know, the generally educated people in America will ask questions and try and get the right answers. And if they don't believe them, they'll they'll keep on going. But, uh, you know, that is a freedom that we have that not every country is privy to. A good example would be North Korea. I mean, if you're behaving uh, according to their dictums and espousing their ideas, you know, or you're behind bars. We're here, you have the ability to question and shame on some of us, on some of our population, on some of our people that don't ask questions. And there certainly is a lot to question, whether it's why do we permit people to come across the border? Why don't we prosecute those people? Why don't we return them? Is there a connection between the jobs that those people take that supposedly Americans don't take? I've got a feeling that if those people weren't here Americans would take the jobs. (laughs) So uh, there's still a lot of things that don't make sense to me, especially what's going on now. When did it come to pass that it's more acceptable to people to be on a social program? and get a handout than it is to get up early in the morning, get properly dressed, get your resume in shape, and go knock on a door and ask ask people at businesses whether they can use some help. This country is what whatever you want to make of it. There's nobody that says, you know, you you have to be a poor guy all your life or a poor gal all your life. We all know people who have started with very humble beginnings and in the end have risen to very great heights. So I think we need to get back to that. And uh, all these handouts that we have going, it's a little different than helping people when they need it. We have incentives for people not to work now, and that that's not helping us. Well,
1: there you go. You know, guys, I couldn't do a favorite moments episode without including my dad, because what kind of son would I be
4: we'll be back after a little break you want your kids to meet the champion of the constitution what if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of ron paul's amazing life what if this biography breaks down complex concepts like austrian economic theory the dangers of the federal reserve blowback and non-interventionist foreign policy what if i told you this book is real and available What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving.
1: Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media newsfeed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LinesOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily.
0: Chris Rossini's new book, Set money, free. Set money Free, what every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve, Set money free. with a special Set forward free. by Ron Paul. Set money free. It has easy-to-understand questions and answers. Buy Set Money Free Set on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set. Money free set money free set money free set. This is Glenn Jacobs and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. <laughs>
1: Thanks again so much, guys, for tuning into this very special episode where I just really wanted to take a few of my favorite moments and share them with you guys, and I hope it might be a great jumping on point for new listeners, people that might not have had the time to go back and listen to the hours and hours and hours of Lions of Liberty podcast available at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, which I highly do encourage you to check out when you find that time if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today. And hey, it's been a great first year. Like I've said, it's really opened up my ability to engage with so many people out there, so many people I've respected, so many people I've, whose writing has influenced me over the years. And now I highly encourage anybody that is getting into this thing to start their own podcast, start their own website. It doesn't need to be the most skillfully produced thing in the world. It doesn't need to be beautiful and, you know, amazing or whatever, but just starting to get your views out there can really do wonders in starting to engage with other people starting to develop your own views, because when you force yourself to explain them, you really have to make sure you're not contradicting yourself. And when you find out that you might be, you have to be open to examining that and taking a look at your own views and developing them. And I think having our own mediums in which to do that, and it's easier now than ever before, is one of the best ways to do that. And yeah, there's a lot of people I couldn't have done this without. I, I really need to thank, including Ron Branch, the man who wrote the Lions of Liberty theme song, I just started tweeting, hey, anyone got some theme music I can use? And next thing you know, this guy Ron Branch from DrawingForLiberty.com. I highly recommend checking out his work. You can also find his art in the Meet Ron Paul book. is a great guy, a great song that I really think is just so fitting to the show. So please do check out his work. Another guy is John Dobbert, my audio engineer. A great guy who has made this... This show go from an okay-sounding show to what I think is a very smooth-sounding package delivered directly to your ears. And, you know, it just wouldn't be quite what it is today without the help of John Daubert, who's just been an invaluable resource. I also recommend checking out his work, which I link to in the post as well at our website. Uh, Stefan Kinsella, heck, for for getting me off my keister and having me record my first show. You know, I had been tossing this idea of a podcast around for some time, and one day I emailed him a question about intellectual property And he said, well, you know, this would really be easier if we just had a conversation on Skype. And that's when I said, all right, um, this is the podcast now. We're going to record it. And, you know, this is going to be the first episode of my show. So uh, I'm glad he kind of did that and put that idea out there for me to really get me off my keister, as they say, and start putting out this podcast. And now for all the new listeners that might be enjoying the show, for old listeners that have been with me from the beginning, I know you're asking yourself, Mark, how can I help you? What can I do to support the Lions of Liberty podcast, where there's a lot of things you can do. The main thing is you can keep listening, because <laughs> that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me motivated to keep getting all these great guests, to keep putting these ideas out there, taking the time out of my day to produce this show. Without listeners, there's no need for me. I can talk to myself all day long. Um, but, you know, other things you can do are subscribe to the show. Even if you just listen directly from the website and don't need to subscribe, Go subscribe on iTunes, go subscribe on Stitcher, because those subscription numbers do help get the show to more people. And, you know, that's ultimately the goal here, to get more people talking about this stuff, to get more people interested in the ideas of liberty. If you can review the show in those same platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, you know, you can write reviews of our show, and, you know, a positive reviews, at least I hope they're positive, but hey, if you have criticisms, heck, toss them up there too, whatever you gotta do. Giving us reviews will also help us kind of up our rankings, get more eyes and ears on this show. Uh, if you want to support us financially, we don't take donations or anything, but we do have some Amazon links at our website. If you go to lionsofliberty.com on your right side, you will see a little Amazon banner. Anything you buy through that banner that you would already normally buy, I don't want you going, going on a spending spree just for us. But if you do want to buy some things from Amazon and you wouldn't mind going through that link first, we will get a small kickback. Help us keep the lights on. Help us keep producing this show for you guys. Yeah, And most importantly, more than anything else probably, is to share this show with others on your social media, on your websites. Email them to your friends and family, whatever. Any way you can help us get more earballs on the show, more eyeballs on our website, lionsofliberty.com would be greatly graciously appreciated. But most of all, Like I said, I hope you keep tuning in each and every week because that's what keeps me going, guys. And as long as you keep tuning in, I'll keep pumping them out. And until next week, you know all I'm going to ask of you guys is to live long and live free.